father was non-discriminatory. He abused all of us. My abuse started when I was a toddler. I was thrown up against a wall or, you know, something very violent. Usually it was spankings, a lot of emotional and psychological terror, and several times a week, rape. I was beaten and then I was handed a toothbrush to clean the entire kitchen because I forgot to rinse out the milk glass. He kept a gun in his nightstand and when I got in the house, he loaded around and put it up against my head and said, if you ever tell anyone again, I'll pull the trigger. I had a train wreck of relationships afterward. <laughs> I you know, became a single mom. I left with $150 in my pocket and a two and a half year old on my hip. You have to just fight through the waves and they're gonna knock you down. I refuse to let those who victimized me define me and my existence. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Sherry Curtical is a domestic abuse survivor. Like many survivors of abuse, her story is challenging to listen to, but there is much to be learned from her. Survivors I've met tell of times when they were on the receiving end of horrible abuse, but they also tell of the inventive ways they endured and overcame those circumstances. This is one of those stories, one when you at first feel sorry for her, but later come to admire and celebrate her courage and desire to rise above. This is Sherry's story. So Sherry, what is your earliest recollection when abuse entered your life? You know, what were those circumstances? Wow. Um, having been abused for so many years of my life and having it happen and start so early and so severely, I really don't have a lot of recollection of my childhood. I have moments, but I can't, I can remember the circumstances, but I can't remember my age. I remember where we lived. It's really hard for me to answer that question. Do you think it that the abuse just kind of like maybe repressed all of that? I mean, it wasn't like for me growing up, I kind of remember scenes of being what probably was two, three, four, five, six years old. But I would say that the parts I don't remember, it's like most people who don't remember. It's not because I was abused by somebody. Do you I think that's what happened to you? I absolutely believe that the repressed memories, the blockage is what protected me, what saved right. me. Defense mechanism. Absolutely. Right. Um, knowing, watching my brother who remembers absolutely everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. And wow. he didn't even come into our family until he was eight years old. He was adopted. Oh, okay. But he remembers everything. He is consistently homeless. He's oh. consistently battling drug and alcohol abuse in and mm. out of jail. Mm. So I truly believe that my lack of memory is what saved me. 
Now, you were abused by your father. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Were other family members, like, was your brother abused by him as well? My father was non-discriminatory. Oh. Mm. Not only abused all of us, but on occasion forced us to uh, interact with each other inappropriately. Okay. Okay. At what point in your life did you know that what was happening to you was wrong, that it wasn't normal, that it was abuse? Could, could you pick at what age you might have been? I remember the exact moment when it all started to flush out. I'd like to preface with saying that I always had a feeling that things were off. I mm -hmm. knew things weren't right, but I couldn't put the language to it. And that was because my abuse started when I was a toddler. Mm, and so when you grow up in that environment and chaos is everything, then it's really hard to put language to something that has been so normalized in your home. I remember a movie called Something About Amelia. Mm, okay. And my father forbade me from watching that, but they always had like the previews throughout, you know, in between, it was really just watching the previews that I realized, especially with him so, you know, vehemently saying, you will not watch this. You will not be allowed to watch this. That was what was happening to me. Right. And that I could put the word abuse to that. Now, what I wasn't able to put words to still was sexual assault, rape. Mm -hmm. um, and the physical abuse was more, you know, grabbing my arm very tightly. There were only a couple of times where I was thrown up against a wall or, um, you know, something very violent. Usually it was spankings, uh, which were quite regular. Mm -hmm. A lot of verbal and emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. A lot of emotional and psychological terror and several times a week rape on a consistent basis. Wow. I'm just so sorry. That is just the worst. Uh. I found out through medical records, I had always been told that I constantly had um, vaginal infections from bubble bath. But then when I went back and started looking at the medical records that I found at my mom's house recently, I discovered that the rapes probably started as far back as age two. God, that's just horrible. I guess I have to ask, because I was going to ask about your mother, what was your mother's awareness of, it, of these type of things taking place? My mother was very young. She got married when she was 20. Um, she had me when she was 21. And my grandmother was very abusive. So she grew up in an abusive household and just wanted to escape. I, and she escapes with, winds up with your father and, and gets more. Yes. And, you know, they, I, I hear the expression that uh, women used to go to college to get an MRS degree. And that was very true with my mom. <laughs> she went to college to find a husband. And because back then, that's what women did. And so she did. Uh, she found a husband that was in the Navy that could provide for her. Then she very shortly had me. Three years later, 
she had my sister, but my sister was born with Down syndrome and uh, was a blue baby, only had two chambers in her heart and only lived to be 12 weeks old. Oh. I think every day, thank God, she didn't make it. And that may sound very cruel. No, it but makes perfect sense with, under these circumstances. Sure. With that many challenges in life to put what we went through on top of that would have just been beyond cruel and unusual punishment. So um, yeah, my mom, you know, there wasn't something that we talked about, but it was very obvious that something was happening, that something was wrong. We walked on eggshells in the house all the time. And this is a man who was allergic to alcohol. He didn't drink. He was just naturally a monster. Any little thing would set him off and you never knew. So we would come home from school and walk in the door if you saw the car in the driveway. You were on full alert. I, re I remember, yeah, I remember one incident. I walked in the house coming home from school. I'd forgotten to rinse out my glass. I used to drink milk in the morning and I set it in the sink because I was running late. Didn't rinse it out. So the milk crusted over in the glass. And when I got home, I was punished severely. I was beaten. And then I was handed a toothbrush to clean the entire kitchen oh. because I forgot to rinse out the milk glass. So, so your was, mother wasn't really much help to you when this was going on. I guess she really, she was aware of, of at least some of what was going on, I would imagine, right? I would imagine. Yeah. It's kind of strange, but I have no memory of my mother in my childhood at all. It's almost like somebody painted a picture and of, you know, my childhood and just, she wasn't in the picture. I know she was there. Right. Well, dad played such but, a huge part. But I just have no memory. I cannot place her in any scenario as a child. So you don't remember ever even going to her at some point and saying, I know I did. Some didn't. version of this is what's going on with dad and help me. No. And I only told one person, actually, I didn't even really tell them. I ran away from home once went to, it wasn't even a good friend. It was just someone that I, I have no idea why I went to her house, but I ended up at her house and her parents, of course, concerned that I was running away, called my family and my father came and picked me up. Right. Yeah. I bet that set him off. Oh yeah. Um, he kept a gun in his nightstand. And when I got in the house, he loaded around and put it up against my head and said, if you ever tell anyone again, I'll pull the trigger. And I never told anyone again. <laughs> that is convincing. And I was not the one that, that turned him in. Uh, my One of my younger sisters actually told a teacher who, mandatory reporter, called it in. And I found myself as a junior in high school with the police coming into the high school. I was called into the office and put into the back of an unmarked police car, my brother and I, and taken to the police station where we were questioned. My father was arrested. My mother spent the next year fighting to keep him out of jail because she worked part-time. They had bought a house that they could barely mm. afford with four kids right. in a nice neighborhood. And how was she going to make it work? Right, right. There we go. Yeah. And you know, can you blame her? 
<laughs> I mean, I would guess his his spell over her was financial abuse, I would imagine. Oh, all kinds of abuse. Um, yeah, I, I bet he, he ran the whole, uh, you know, ran the score up with yeah, her. Yeah, so he was convicted. There's a lifetime restraining order against him um, for all of us. Although, including including uh, your mother, I don't know about my mother. Um, okay, I do know about us kids. I do know that he was he was charged with sodomy. He was never charged with rape because they didn't have enough proof. He got six weekends in jail, so he would spend the weekends in jail, and he was allowed to go to work every day so he could provide for the family. Right back then, they didn't have a registration, so he's not in any database as a sex offender oh boy so he's still alive and flying planes of sick kids from north carolina to ohio because he has his pilot's license oh he's flying yep so i hope parents are with their children when they're flying their sick children from north carolina to ohio that's unbelievable yep you'd be naive to think that he's stopped what he was so unfortunately prolific he at. He is still very much a manipulator. And the unfortunate fact is, is that my other siblings are still in touch with him. And so I have no contact with them at all. Really? You're cut off from absolutely everybody? I've had to. I've had to. He's dangerous. Okay. They're in touch with him. Is that a form of saying they've forgiven him? He provides them with things that they need, like trucks, money. There's always strings. Yeah, there has to be some kind of a connection. It has to be control, Absolutely. right? It has to be power over that. Absolutely. And right. I am the, sure that's the calling card. I am the only one that has completely shut him off from the day he was arrested. Good for you. You're a model in that way. You and I had a conversation a year ago, and you talked about everybody in your family had some version of an addiction. And in some way, it's almost as if you picked your own addiction, which had to be hard work and going at it and just countless hours and focus and doing new things. What I said was everyone who suffers trauma, especially in domestic violence, suffers from some sort of addiction. Okay. For some, it's drugs and alcohol, like my brother. For some, it's religion, like my sister, uh, one of my sisters. Another one, it's sex and drugs. For me, it turned out to be work. I'm a workaholic. I love what I do. It's hard work. It's emotionally hard. Sometimes I have to step away. For me, being able to do things and be productive in my life is my addiction. The way I look at it is I had 29 years of abuse. I've got 29 years worth of living to catch up with. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much longer I have on this earth. And I want to make sure that when my when my time is up, that I have no regrets, that I've lived every moment to its fullest. If that's your mantra, you are following it like uh, to a fairly well, right? Yes. You had those parts of abuse going on when you were growing up, but you also suffered marital abuse, didn't you? I had a train wreck of relationships afterward. <laughs> Okay. That's a lot. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Right out of high school, I did go to college. I had an an attempted sexual assault. A guy crawled through my window. My dorm room was on the floor level. Oh, okay. And he attempted to get on top of me. 
I fought him off oh. and screamed loud enough that people came in and he ran out the window. Oh. Um, so I was, I was one of the fortunate ones. I can't um, imagine waking up. You know, it's one thing to, to wake up in the, from a horrible nightmare, but this nightmare is on top of you physically. Yes. Yes. Oh. And then, you know, just abusive boyfriends. Um, a lot of them, you know, then a, a failed marriage, a horrible custody battle. And then it didn't end there. I, you know, became a single mom. I left with $150 in my pocket and a two and a half year old on my hip was homeless for three months, living in another woman's house, uh, house sitting because I didn't have a place to go. Then, you know, having to share an apartment with a coworker and being afraid that if child services came in, we actually decorated her room in the apartment to look like my daughter's room because if child services came and my daughter didn't have her own bedroom, they would take her from me. Oh, goodness. And so Clever. because she had a boyfriend that she was at her boyfriend's house all the time, she said, then just decorate my room to look like hers. That's fine. <laughs> and so when I love child, that. yeah, when child services would come over, oh. um, you know, it, it looked like my daughter's bedroom. Oh, that's great. Do you have teddy bears, anything like that? Oh, we had Disney characters on the walls. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That, that you know, that in, in the midst of your story, that part is a smile. I mean, come on. Yes. <laughs> but then, you know, having to drive a, I remember my, I, <laughs> when I left my marriage, I left with a 68 Mustang coupe. I couldn't afford to keep it. So I traded it in and got a Ford Festiva, had a gas leak, oh. and I was able to finally find a job. I had been working in the music business, and I was able to find a job in Manhattan, but I lived in Spring City, Pennsylvania. I couldn't afford to take the turnpike. I just didn't have enough money. And so I would drive four hours each way to get to work with my daughter would drop her off at a daycare program three days a week. It cost me $790 for three days a week in Manhattan. She was just down the street from me. I could afford to, to drive into Hoboken, park my car in this cheap lot that was several blocks away, and then take the path in because the path train was only a dollar to take the path. So I did that for three months until I could finally afford to save up enough with my new job to get an apartment in Plainsboro, New Jersey, with a roommate again. And then it was several more months before I could actually afford to you know, get a train ticket and start taking the train into work every day. Yeah, eight-hour commute every day. It was insane. My daughter and I ate two meals a day in the car oh because- my. You know, we'd leave at 4.30 in the morning, get her to school by 8.30, get me to work by 9. And, you know, she was three and a half years old. I was going to ask her age. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then we'd get home by 10 o'clock at night, quick bath, put her to bed. I would cook all my meals on the weekend and package them up, put most of them in the freezer, and then just slack them out when I'd get home for the next day. Yeah, it was pretty intense. And most of that time, I could not afford to feed both of us. I made sure she had good meals, and I am not a small person. 
I am 5'9", and I got down to 114 pounds just oh because my. I couldn't afford to eat. Yeah. That's a tough diet. Yep. Have you ever considered writing a book, or have you written a book? <laughs> People ask me that all the time, but I really don't have enough memory to write a lot of details. Well, but even the parts that you remember are just so, as I say so many times to people, you could make up things better than you experienced. Yes. Yeah. I look back now and I think about how, and I guess that's part of what gives me my fearlessness now is mm -hmm. that I've overcome so much in my past that the rest of this is relatively easy. <laughs> Yeah, you'd have to look at so Not many things much. and just say, that's nothing. I mean, that's tiny. Yeah, when you put it in perspective, mm -hmm. you know, my, my new mantra is, you know, why not? Why not try something new? Why not? Sure. You know? Right. Yeah, you might as well, because the worst thing that can happen will never match what you've already seen. Yes. Unfortunately, hundreds of times in your life, not just now and then. Yes. Let's kind of get a little closer to now in time. Because you and I met about a year ago, thanks to a mutual friend, and it had to do with our experience in life, which is losing my daughter now, 16 years ago, and the things that I've been trying to do, but also to get in touch with you because of some of the things that you've been doing, especially in the last couple of years, regarding people trying to get evidence into courtrooms that is admissible. So in the last couple of years, you've come up with this breakthrough product tool that people can use who are victims or survivors so that they can take evidence in the court that is admissible, that actually goes in. One of the articles I saw recently made it sound like conviction rates are as low as 20% for these domestic violence cases. People go in with the best of intentions and they have all these papers and journals and, and so much of it is not admissible and it just sits. It, it can't come in. It, it wasn't brought in the right way. So please tell us about what you came up with, you and your team, and what it solves. So one of the consistencies through all of my experiences was that people in positions of authority would always tell me, document, 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 you know, keep records, document. So I did. I kept journals. I Back then, we didn't have cell phones, so it was paper journals. And so Is this while you're married, these journals and these oh, things? Oh, even, even as a kid. Oh, I journaled okay. like crazy what was going on, hoping someday my you know, fairy godmother would discover this journal by accident that was hidden in my bedroom. I mean, are you like 12 years old at the time, you saying? Oh, I, I have no idea. But as long as I can, I have recollection, I've always journaled, kept notes. You would write these things. I mean, if your father saw that, that would be a bad day. So what did you do with it? Where'd you hide it? I got really good at learning very quickly to hide things in plain sight. Uh. <laughs> the last place where people will look. In fact, my older daughter, who's grown now, she was an expert at finding Christmas presents. So I used to hide them in her room because that was the last place where she would look <laughs> and she never found them. <laughs> That's brilliant. And when I was escaping my last abusive relationship, I actually stashed cash behind the pictures hanging on the walls because who thinks to take a picture apart and look behind it? Oh. So he was looking at the cash all the time, not realizing it. But I love it. Yeah. So I would 
keep pages and put them in cookbooks or cookbooks that I knew that we didn't use, but things that I could stash and no one would think to look for them. They would look for a journal, you know? <laughs> yeah, there were times when I did keep a journal and there were places where I could keep it, uh, work or whatever. And then later in life, it was binders and boxes of documentations and reports and all these different things. What people really don't understand is what's relevant to me as an individual who's going through an experience is not how the laws are written. So mm -hmm. if my father walks in and spanks me with a paddle, uh, which he regularly did, that's not illegal behavior. If someone calls me an idiot every day, and he used to have this expression that I won't say because of the vulgarity of it, and he said it every single day, that wasn't illegal. So there was nothing that okay. I could bring to court to say, this man is doing this to me, so or any of these people. So what people are documenting are experiences and what they're going through, but it doesn't translate necessarily to the letter of the law. And okay. even if they document afterward, there are so many complexities to what is documented, how is it documented, how is it stored, how is it kept, who mm -hmm. has access to it, and can you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt all these pieces, the answer is going to be no, they can't. And so that's where I decided that I could solve that problem. I could take that complexity and allow them to not only express their sentiment, what's relevant to them, but also what's relevant to the courts and help them collect information that they may not even think of. So things like mm. maybe your child was asleep in the other room. Well, in most states, if you are being abused and your children are in the other room, whether you think they hear it or not, that's child endangerment. And those are chargeable offenses. Uh, wow. If your abuser comes in the door and kicks the dog and the dog has to go to the vet, all 50 states have animal cruelty laws on the books. But you don't think okay. as a victim going through a circumstance to document, oh, he kicked the dog on the way in. Or, you mm -hmm. know, that mm -hmm. he kicked you in the stomach. You know, you had bleeding, but nothing happened. So you didn't go to the doctor or maybe you did and you just went to the doctor and told the doctor that you had some, you know, bleeding. We help make sure that what they're documenting will stand up in court and stand up against defense attorneys as well. Yes. So you're doing things that are admissible in court. So I'm this woman and I get kicked in the stomach and I have bleeding and I write it down on a piece of paper and I hide it in my cookbook, but that's not going to be necessarily admissible, but you have a way that I can document that so that it is. Is that right? Right. So a loose piece of paper in a cookbook is hearsay. It's just it, it, me. Is that because notes. I could have written that on any given day? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Even if you put a date on it, it's a loose piece of paper. I mean, I could write that the morning of going into court, right? Exactly. But if you document, let's say you're documenting in our tool, you get kicked in the stomach, there's bleeding, you go to the doctor. When you go to the doctor, you tell the doctor, oh, I just, I'm experiencing some bleeding. You don't tell them that it's as a result of any kind of abuse. 
So the doctor makes notes. There's a medical report that you had to go to the doctor, but the doctor can't testify that you were there because of an abusive situation. Even if you tell the investigators later on that that's what it was from, they can't pull the doctor in as an expert testimony because you didn't tell the doctor that that's what was going on and it wasn't documented as such at the time. But if you go to the doctor and you don't tell the doctor, but you document in our tool that I was kicked in the stomach and there's spotty bleeding and I need to go to the doctor to make sure that physically I'm okay and the baby's okay, but I can't tell the doctor because... I still have to live with this person and because they're a mandatory reporter, if they report this, then I'm going to be, my whole existence is going to be ripped apart and you document why you didn't tell the doctor. Now you're linking that medical report to an experience and that does become testimony. The doctor can't testify necessarily that it was an abusive situation but you're linking that you actually were injured and there was a medical report. So it links that type of information that otherwise never would have been able to be admissible at all. Now you're saying that a doctor is a mandatory reporter. So if you do go in, if you had gone in. In some places, yes. some, Some places meaning some states? Yes. Okay. So you had an inspiration to capture this information somehow. And tell us about that. Back in 2016, when my youngest daughter was 10, she had a friend who was getting picked on. And the friend did everything that she was supposed to do. She told the teacher. Like a bull, just a, your standard bully scene kind of yeah, thing you mean? Yeah, just, you know, she, her friend was sensitive and would cry. And so when she got picked on, she okay. would cry and try okay. to hide it. And the kids would pick on her more. Okay. You know, not the legal definition of bullying, but but just kids being cruel. Okay. And so she told the teacher, and then she told the guidance counselor, and of course the kids got spoken to, and then she got labeled as a tattletale, and things got worse. Oh, that makes sense. So one day my daughter came home and said, I wish there were something I could do. I wish there were a mobile app that she could report in privately so this could get taken care of. And I looked at my daughter and said, then build one. Mm. Now, she's 10. Yeah, and she I'm should setting, be able to handle that. Right. I'm setting the expectation of, well, if you see a problem and you want to fix it, do your best to fix it. And so she did. She built an anti-bullying mobile app for her science fair project. Oh, my God. <laughs> really? <laughs> now, she it wasn't collecting any personally identifiable information. It was more antidotal, but it was web-based, and it was sent out across the country to parents whose kids wanted to submit information. So we had parental consent. We had people from all over the country submit information, and it was heartbreaking what these kids are experiencing. We asked if they were in elementary school, middle school, high school, so we kind of knew the age groups, and then for them to uh, not name a school, but they could name a town and, and or a state, and what were they experiencing. So we got a lot of anecdotal information from it. She won elementary division of the science fair and won a communication award. And then we were invited to speak at a developers conference out on the West Coast. (laughs) So they flew our whole family out on the West Coast and we spoke at this conference. Oh my goodness. It was during the Q&A session afterward that was 
really eye-opening. For me, I had worked in enterprise tech for a number of years, mm-hmm. but it never really occurred to me that the right technology could be used to solve social impact issues. That wasn't my space. I just wasn't thinking about it. Sure. But on that stage that day, when people started asking the what ifs, my two worlds really collided. My personal experience world with my professional world. And that's when I got really excited about what she had built. Now, my daughter is very much an introvert after that experience said, I've had enough, you can do whatever you want, but you cannot use my name in the app. (laughs) Oh, that's good. So her app was called the Zebra app. The Z represented her name. So we dropped the Z off and that's where our corporate name Abinra comes from. And it's an acronym for Ending Barriers in Reporting Adversity. I wondered what that was. Okay. Yes. That's very My good. husband says it sounds like a pharmaceutical drug. Ask your attorney if Abindra is right for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the commercials that run about 60 seconds with a lot of 800 numbers. But yes. Yeah, a lot of disclaimers. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of contraindications and a million things could happen to you. Yes. But that's great. It's interesting that, that she gained so much positive feedback, notoriety, but also that she said, okay, that's enough. I want to go back to being a kid. I want to go back to being me. Yes, I think... Largely now, you know, she's in high school now, but um, largely due to the work that I do, she has really learned to set personal boundaries. She is not pressured in being in relationships that she doesn't feel comfortable with, even with friends. Yes. She had an experience with a friend where she started recognizing the cycle of abuse of the treating her really poorly and then coming back with the friend love bombing situation Yes, and recognized it for what it was and ended it completely. So I, I'm really proud of her. Really, yes. really proud. Yes. Yeah. She is advanced. Yeah. Setting boundaries. That's something I, in the last couple of conversations I've had on podcasts that keeps coming up and love bombing too. Yes. Honestly, three months ago, I couldn't tell you what that meant. Now I know exactly what it means, but yeah, just completely overdoing it you know, just everything. I mean, it's like storybook romance and here come all these nice things and things that were never done before. And, you know, if it's a new cell phone, depending on what age you are, someone buys you stuff and just boom, 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 you know, let's go here. Let's do that. Everything's just going to be great. I think back in my day, parents didn't want to talk to their kids about sex. These days, you know, they're teaching sex in schools. They're teaching sex education in schools. So Yes, there are still circumstances, plenty of circumstances where parents are uncomfortable talking to their kids about, you know, sexual relations. But I think that conversation of today is parents are so afraid to talk about healthy relationships and boundaries. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because they don't know how to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't think they're equipped to do it. I see the difference with how I talk to my older daughter mm-hmm. and how I taught my younger daughter. And I think I, no, I don't think, I know I did a much better job the second go around. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I was much more equipped to recognize what's healthy and what's not. Yes. I'm very pleased to say I'm in an extremely healthy relationship now. Good. I'm happy about that. That doesn't mean we don't have arguments. We do. But we have healthy arguments. Yes. And it's important that she sees what a healthy argument looks like as importantly as it is for her to see what a healthy bond and relationship is. 
because everyone's going to have arguments. Sure. I mean, there are going to be things you just don't agree on, but, but it doesn't have to become personal and doesn't have to become a big flap. You know, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to go nuclear. Exactly. So we haven't used the name of your product. So I want to get to that. And it's one that I'm just so smitten by. So tell us about it. I don't want to say the name. I'm going to let you say the name, but tell us what it is and tell us what it does and why it's really revolutionary. It's called Victim's Voice. All one word, I want to say. All one word, two capital V's. Yes. Yes. Thank Thank you. you. Sure. I've gotten some pushback on the name too, where some survivors say, well, I'm a survivor. I don't like to use the word victim. Yes. I've been corrected on that too. Yes. Yes. That was very intentional. A lot of companies or products have taglines and I have a personal brand tagline. And my personal tagline is victim by force, survivor by choice, activist by design. Wow. I love that. I say that because we are giving people who are in active abusive situations now an opportunity to put their voice in a secure location and be able to, if it's their choice, use that voice in a legal setting, Uh if that's the route they choose. And so we intentionally use the word victim because you are being victimized. This is not something someone chooses. This is not something that someone allows. I hear people saying, well, I allowed my abuser to do this to me, or I empowered my abuser to do this to me. No, you didn't. Abusers are pros at what they do. They are masters of manipulation and control. They are the Bernie Madoffs of abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the smartest people in the world are taken by these con artists. And that's what they are. They are love con artists. Yes. They will take a strong person and make it their mission to whittle away absolutely every ounce of their existence until there's nothing left of them. So at that point, you are being victimized and we're giving victims a voice. Yes, I see. That makes perfect sense. We will say that we will stand by the name of victim's voice because we're allowing those that are victimized to be able to move into that next phase of survivor and then whatever else you choose to name yourself. And that's a choice. You get to name yourself whatever you want to call yourself. And that's an important choice to make. Yes, I'm glad you stuck to your guns on that. Those experiencing domestic or intimate partner abuse are now documenting their experiences, but the law is very specific. And what is relevant to the survivor is not the same as what the courts allow as evidence. Victim's voice, which is all one word with no punctuation, Victim's voice helps capture the details of each incident in a way that meets the very specific and confusing requirements because legally admissible documentation really doesn't matter until it does. Victim's voice, giving victims a legal voice. If you cannot afford a license, Victim's Voice partners can provide one for you at no cost. Find partner members and more information on the web at victimsvoice.app. And you can also find them on social 
using at Victim's Voice app. There has to be that turning point. There has to be that turning point when that person decides to stop being a victim and be a survivor, you know, to, to, to stop being on the receiving end of it and turn. And it, and it can't be done in a moment. You know, it takes time to make that turn and come back because, as you said, these people who abuse, they kind of take their good old time to make their way in and get to the point where they've got you everywhere they want you to be and, in, in, you know, in the place they want you to be. And to break free from that takes a while. I mean, it takes a while. And they yes. have to feel like they can do it. They have to be absolutely 100% determined to do it. It's going to be a long road back. It's going to take help. They can't, most of them can't do it alone. You know, I imagine there are a few, but can't do it alone. But the fact that you've given them a tool that they can collect this in a way that they're they're not going to lose it and that they can then, if they want to, if they have to, they can kind of play all those cards they've collected now through this product of yours, just this great tool and they can use it. You know, that's that's a great hammer to come back with. Thank you. We call it an app. But it's not something that you'll find in any app store, and it's not anything that you'll ever download to any device. It's web-based. We made it that way also intentionally because we wanted to make sure that anyone who could get access to the web could have access to this tool. We don't store any information on any device. So even if you are going through a legal proceeding and a defense attorney wants to subpoena your phone because they say, well, you have all these, this evidence on your phone, you can fight that back because no, we don't store any data on the phone. I'm happy to have anyone call us and ask us about that. You know, I have a feeling I know where you store all the data. I think it's all stored on some big mainframe computer in a cookbook in your house. <laughs> I think I cracked how you do this. Very clever. Very clever, Sherry. We are very, very dedicated to our users and their privacy. Mm-hmm. So when someone does create an account in Victim's Voice, mm-hmm. we encrypt their contact information, their data immediately. Oh, good. So we don't even know who our users are. Oh, really? You now, don't even from, know your users? No. So from a marketing professional's perspective, that makes my job really hard. But yes. it's not about me. It's about protecting them. Sure. That's brilliant. And we do that also because if they have a customer support question that they need to submit through their account. Oh yeah. How do we know that one of our customer support people doesn't know the person that's asking the question? So because when they even submit a support ticket, it just comes across as a database ID number. We protect the identity throughout the process. So as they're answering a series of guided questions through the tool to document, we're encrypting each response immediately. So even if they get one question in and have to close the the tool down, that information is encrypted and stored, and it's stored on our own private servers. Okay. It's stored in such a way that even the user themselves cannot get back into their core information. Okay. And we do that for a number of reasons. Number one, 
I know from my own personal experience that within 30 minutes of an incident happening, I've already justified in my head why it's my fault. Mm-hmm, sure. And the facts are starting to get muddled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to be immediate. Exactly. The other reason is because a lot of my memories are based on photographs that I've seen or journal entries that I've written, and they're not actually a memory coming out of my head. They're a memory of something I've observed. And so we have to protect the integrity of the evidence going in and making sure that it's actually coming from the memory of the person and not something that they've seen that they've written before. The third and most important reason is we have to be able to certify to the court's chain of custody. Oh, that's important too. Yes. do that, right? Yes. Wow. We can't do that if they have access to that data and can view it, tamper with it, edit it, delete it, whatever. And then we've talked about love bombing. Mm -hmm. The first thing a victim wants to do when they're being love bombed is get rid of any evidence because Mm. things are good. At least up to a certain degree, I've forgiven what got us to this place. Right. And so you want to destroy anything that might rock that boat. Three days later, they could wish they had it. Right. And so we make sure that they do still have it. Absolutely. We allow for photographs to be uploaded and we don't limit the number of photographs. In fact, we encourage them to take a ton of photographs Mm -hmm. because photographs are very powerful evidence. Okay. What we don't allow for is audio or video. And a lot of apps Because some states, you know, just... uh... Yes. What do they call that? Like one person permission or? It's one party consent or all party consent. And we're based in New Jersey. We're a one party consent state. I can record any conversation that I'm a part of. However, in Pennsylvania, our neighboring state, it's an all party consent state where it's a felony offense. If you record your abuser without their consent, you could go to jail. And if you shoot video, is, is it the video that is illegal or is that the soundtrack? That's both. Illegal? Audio oh, both. and video recordings. Yes. And there are 13 or 14 states. We have them all identified on our, on our website. You know, we just couldn't risk someone not knowing the laws in their state and tainting the evidence and facilitating them committing a felony. Let's say, okay, somebody's used victim's voice. They're doing it correctly. They have a good sense now of what's permissible. You know, they've been tuned up, you know, from the standpoint of they were collecting the wrong things before they were collecting the right things, but not correctly. They've got everything. They're going to go into court. Now, how do they get what they have recorded? If that's the proper word, what they've documented, how do they get that and walk into a courtroom someplace and sit down and, and their attorney or they themselves display this? Like, how do they get their hands on whatever they've recorded or kept? We have what's called a records recipient in their account. And the user would go in and designate a records recipient by name, email address, and phone number. So that records recipient would then receive access to download that report and all the attached files. It needs to be someone other than themselves? It can be themselves. And in fact, we often encourage them to send it to themselves We also encourage them to not give their entire report to their attorney because if they do, then it can be subject to defense discovery. Oh, that's right. They have to share things. Yes. So assign yourself as the records recipient, download your own report and your own files and have a conversation with your attorney. And then 
find out what the best means of getting whatever evidence, if it is a severe enough case and that evidence is going to help them and they're going to have to turn it over to the defense team, then so be it. But have a conversation first without handing it over. Also, educate yourselves on who are mandatory reporters. If, you, if you're someone 13 years or older, you're in school and you're documenting something that's happening through a dating relationship or something of that nature, don't assign your guidance counselor as the records recipient. They're mandatory reporters and they're oh. going to have to hand that report over. And then it starts a really big ball rolling that you may not be in a position to want to or be able to stop and that could be dangerous. So work with people who can help you through safety planning. Work with building a network of people that can support you and assign yourself as the records recipient first and foremost if it's safe for you to download that information. If it's not, keep it where it is and just have a conversation until mm -hmm. you're ready to release it. Sherry, when you say work with people who can support you, who comes to mind in that case? I mean, are you talking domestic violence agencies or trusted family members? Who, who are we referring to? I would say yes. Yes to both. So, yeah, it's okay. really, really important to have a support network. This is, like you mentioned before, a long, long road back. It took me over 10 years to regain my sense of self and be strong enough to be able to say confidently, I will not be in any more abusive situations. Now that road back for you was from a marriage? From uh, all of it. <laughs> from everything. Okay. 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 But I just wanted to be clear. Trauma okay. affects different people in different ways. Sure. And it's not a point A to point B. It's a messy, long, laborious journey. When people say, don't look for the destination, enjoy the journey. There's not a lot of pleasure in, in this journey. It's going to be hard and you're going to have to just work through it. Don't work around it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. go through it. Mm -hmm. And you're going to need a support system in place to do that. Victim advocates are an excellent place to start because they can help you navigate the legal system. They can help you navigate support systems and you may not have friends and family that you feel you can trust. Oftentimes, it's friends and family that are the ones that are abusing you. Yes. And so be very careful about who you trust. But advocates are there. That's their job. That's what they do. That's what their intentions are. These are good people that are really there to support you and find those additional support systems that you can put into place. When you say victim advocates, again... If somebody were to say, okay, I've listened to this podcast and I need to search out a victim advocate, where am I searching? I mean, is that an official thing with each state? Because I know there's an office of victim advocate in states, but are you yes. thinking, again, domestic violence agency, where, where are you? Oftentimes, the larger state coalition nonprofits may or may not have victim advocates Usually there's a key nonprofit that works with a prosecutor's office and they have victim advocates that liaison with the district attorney's office, mm -hmm. but, you know, just have conversations before you share information, but it hasn't been announced yet. So I guess I'll announce it here first. 
we have officially partnered with a nonprofit that is a victim advocacy nonprofit, and uh, we will be building out a network for organizations to find victim advocates. Oh, wow. Um, so that when they don't have a full time one on staff, they'll be able to have a one that they can access with the specialties that they need. Yes, we've officially partnered with DVA Center and we'll be putting out a press release on that very soon. Okay. This will give those that are using our tool access to people who can help them safety plan and get out if they don't have one in their area. Okay. Yeah. So for people to get in touch with Victim's Voice and to use the app, so to speak, not a real app, but but a well, web-based. progressive web app. Yes. yes. <laughs> An app in, uh, in quotes. For them to become acquainted with it, for them to actually get it and use it, how would you direct them? We have not only information about our tool on our website, but we have a plethora of information on resources, laws, policies, all kinds of stuff on our website. And our website address is victimsvoice.app. Okay, victims voice, all one word, no punctuation, no funny business, no spaces, just victimsvoice.app, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. And all of our social media also has a lot of information there. And that's Victim's Voice app. And that's across the board, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. We even have some TikTok videos up oh, there. Okay. Audio and video surveillance laws. <laughs> we try to make them a little snarky and fun. but <laughs> Oh, well, good. Well, good. Yeah. I think people who are, who are looking into that kind of information probably need that because it's just so tough. It's so heavy. It's not happy. You know, it's harsh, no. you know, yes. and, and, and it's uh, like you say, it's a long road back, but you're just such a positive, upbeat person. And I have to ask, were you always like this or is, is this something somewhere along the way you decided to be like this? I mean, you've been like this every time I've ever seen a video with you or talk with you, but I mean, were you this person, you know, way back? No, I was not this person. I was a very sad person who was depressed and quiet and shy, oh. worked very hard at uh, melding into the wallpaper or disappearing completely. Mm. You know, I am a attempted suicide survivor um, oh. of not once, but multiple times, I've suffered from anorexia and bulimia. I run the gamut. You really have. And oh my God. I worked really hard. I actually wrote a couple of, of posts on our Medium account of kind of what that journey looked like for me. But it was a lot of really hard, intentional work of, like I said, working through it. And I say that over and over again, because for me, it was almost like when you go to the beach and the waves are really big. And you stand at the edge of the ocean and every time the wave hits you, it knocks you down. Mm -hmm. But if you can just get through that line of waves, then it's much easier to navigate the water on the other side. Mm -hmm. And that's Keep what walking into it is what you have to do. Yeah. And, and you can't go around the waves. The beach is too long. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. Sure. You have to just fight through the waves and they're going to knock you down. That's a good analogy. They're going to, you're going to, you're going to get a lung full of water sometimes. Right. And you're going to feel like you're absolutely drowning and no one can hear you scream. But keep 
fighting because there's blue skies and rainbows and and glitter on the other side. <laughs> Jeez. That, that is a brilliant visual metaphor. You know, I'd, I'd never heard that before, but that is so apt. And you've had some incredible, you've had tidal waves and you've kept pushing, pushing, pushing in. I refuse to let those who victimized me define me mm-hmm. and my existence. Mm-hmm. They will not be my definition. My definition will absolutely be defined by me and those I choose to have around me. And I choose now who I keep in my circle, making sure that those people are positive people in my life. Mm. They aren't always positive people. They don't always have positive experiences and that's okay. But they're good people that I have positive experiences with and a positive relationship with. And that's what I choose. That's great. I mean, I hope everybody takes that with them from this point on. That is just, that's the way to live your life. There's no doubt about it. You know, I saw something a few years ago. It might've been in an Oprah magazine and it just, it had someone in there who just said, surround yourself with people and things that make you feel good and get away from things and people that make you feel bad. And that's kind of it. That's kind of what you're doing. And it seems so obvious, but you know, so often we cling and hang out with things that just bum us out and make us feel bad. I'm big on analogies because I think telling a story paints a better picture for people, helps people relate. Mm-hmm. I tell people a lot of times who really struggle with making decisions when they're coming out of abusive situations. I say, you know, somebody has put you in a garden with really rich soil. This soil will grow anything, absolutely anything. And you have been given the gift of two handfuls of seeds from the nightshade family. One is tomato. One is belladonna. Belladonna is beautiful, Mm. but it will kill you if you consume it. Tomato has really ugly flowers, but the fruit will sustain you for life. Now, I want you to plant both those seeds in the garden, and I'm going to give you a watering can. And that watering can represents the choice that you make, and you can water either batch of seeds. The choice is yours. So which one are you going to give your time and attention to? Which one are you going to give your life to? Which one are you going to give your power to? Which one will you water? That's just brilliant. I love the picture. I just love the picture because the watering can, I mean, you're right. I mean, you got to really be protective of which way you aim that watering can. And, and every time you fill it, you walk back out there, where are you going to put it? Because it sure looks pretty over in that one side, but it can sure put a hurt on you. So anyone listening to this podcast, my husband calls me Big Smile. There's a sunflower called Big Smile. I save all my sunflower seeds to pass on to other people. So anyone listening to this that needs a little reassurance in which seed to water reach out to me and I'll make sure you get a package of my big smile sunflower seeds. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I see a picture of of a sunflower on the wall back there. Is that, am I wrong? One of my daughters painted that and I have some sunflowers in the back. Oh, there you go. I wouldn't even look at that. Yes. It's one of my favorite flowers. Yes. That's really good. Yeah. I'll send you some seeds. Oh, will you? Okay. Thank you. (laughs) It's very nice of you. Don't send me that belladonna stuff on the other No, no, no. I've ripped all those out of the garden. Smart. <laughs> they didn't even go in the compost pile. 
Smart. So Sherry, I met you a year ago. We were introduced by a mutual friend. We were told we had unique experience and skills that we could share. And I'm just so glad that I had that opportunity to meet you. And it's been been a great year being in touch with you from time to time and, and doing some things with you. But you've taken what life has handed you and done wonders with it. And if you address the needs of abuse victims and created a tool that helps people get justice, and this is under, I mean, it's just under the direst of circumstances. I mean, some of the things you've talked about today are, are just, in the worst sense, breathtaking. So thank you for speaking with me today and sharing your victim's voice tool. And it's such a complete game changer for victims, and I'll say, and survivors of domestic violence and their families. So thank you for doing this. Your time is very precious. I didn't expect I would get in touch with you and get together with you quite so quickly. You know, I hope I'm in your circle. I I uh, love that idea. So I know you're in mine. I value our friendship very much, and you and your family inspire me every single day. That's nice. Very sweet. Your book was so powerful for me and really helped craft some Good. of the conversations that I've had with my own daughter. And so for that... I thank you. And for inviting me, thank you so much. You're welcome. And, and this is just uh, really, it's such an honor to, to know you and to have the opportunity to engage with you. And, and I'm just keeping an eye on what you are doing. You know, there are videos popping up and there are more things I know in the pipeline. It's very exciting and, and just helping people never, I know you never tire of it. I don't either. So yep. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Take good All care. Right. The When Dating Hurts podcast is growing steadily. Why is that? Analytics tell us it has to do with relevant content that listeners really want to hear. And in our case, we're talking about your daughters and sons. What could be more important or interesting? Let me thank you for listening in and for asking friends and family to listen too. If you want to reach us, head to whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.